Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 21 this morning. Christianity confesses uh, that the one true God is triune. There is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And today you'll hear a lot about the Holy Spirit. Uh, We'll especially talk about Him filling the church for mission. Uh, Some have called the Holy Spirit the forgotten God. In one sense, that's part of His primary duty, though. Not to draw attention to Himself, but to shine the spotlight on the risen Lord Jesus. At the same time, it's right that we recognize how active he truly is alongside Father and Son. Throughout the Bible storyline, we see the Holy Spirit advancing God's purpose for his people. Where there's chaos, he brings order. Uh, Where there's a nobody, he makes a somebody. Where there's death, he gives life. Where there's defilement, he purifies And where there's a desert land, he brings forth a garden paradise. Acts chapter 2 is another significant example of the Spirit's work. The story in Acts so far goes something like this. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is bringing his kingdom on earth. Jesus Christ ascended to the heavenly throne. Jesus restores the twelve as the beginnings of his new people. And now they're all together waiting for Jesus to pour out the Spirit as he promised. So let's see what happens beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that is these 120 that were mentioned earlier, They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews... Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. They are holy and true, without error, and authoritative for our lives. Please fill me with the Holy Spirit as I preach about the filling of the Holy Spirit. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So let's start with the big picture of chapter 2 as a whole. It'll take a few weeks to flesh this out, but there's, there's essentially three big sections here in chapter 2. And the first section comes in verses 1 to 13, where Luke describes the events of what actually happened when the Spirit came down, a sound of a mighty wind, tongues of fire, Jews speaking all kinds of foreign languages... And if you're scratching your head, you're not alone. Some of these folks think they're just wasted. Others ask, in verse 13, what does this mean? What's a great question? A great question that Luke then answers for us in the next 20 verses. That's the second section. We get a little from the prophet Joel, which I just read. And a couple more psalms that we'll look at in the weeks to come. And it is rich and powerful. But what's going on is that prior revelation from God in the Old Testament is now interpreting and informing and fleshing out what's going on in the New. So we get the events, and then we get the meaning. And the next is the results. Chapter 2 closes with this little snapshot of of the new community that the Spirit Creates About 3,000 come to know the Lord. And and it's a beautiful picture of the church, uh, you know, devoting themselves to the word and praying and breaking bread together and and, uh, giving generously and witnessing. And I can't wait to get there. But those things won't flourish without first understanding the Spirit's coming at the front end of chapter 2. So I want to make some observations today. At the front part of chapter 2... Uh, under six headings. Number one, the Spirit 
comes from the exalted Lord Jesus. I'll go slower today since we don't have the screen. The Spirit comes from the exalted Lord Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says, Suddenly there came from heaven. In the last place that occurred, uh, the word heaven was in chapter 1, verse 11. It says that this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven. So Jesus went into heaven. The Spirit is now coming from heaven. Now look at chapter 2, verse 33. It says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's talking about Jesus there, pouring this out. There's, and since there's an Old Testament expectation in Isaiah 32 that a king would one day reign in righteousness over the nations and the Holy Spirit would be poured out from on high. And here we see that taking place. The Spirit comes from the exalted Jesus. Uh, John 7.39 had said before that the Spirit was not yet sent because Jesus was not yet glorified. So now Jesus has been glorified and He sends the Spirit. It's it's not that the Spirit was never at work before, but that the, the, the way He was at work before only anticipated this much greater outpouring that we're getting here once Jesus' work was finished on the cross. We'll discuss that more in a moment. The point I want to make here is that the Spirit brings the heavenly reign of Jesus into the lives of His people. He brings heaven on earth. If you asked, where do we see the kingdom of God now? The Bible's answer is, In the church of Jesus Christ. In God's spirit-filled people. The church is, or I should say is supposed to be, the very theater where Jesus displays his present rule on earth. And that means the church isn't a community that does whatever the culture around us or the feelings inside of us think is best. Jesus pours out His Spirit to enable people to do His will on earth. Anything else, we have to say, is of a different spirit. But when we follow His Spirit, how incredible to think that God uses us, broken as we are, to display one of the greatest realities in the universe. Jesus' reign and His power over sin. Number two, the Spirit comes... To indwell his people, bringing them God's presence. The Spirit comes to indwell his people, bringing them God's presence. So Luke describes two phenomena in verse 2 and 3. There's a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and there's the divided tongues as a fire. You know, why this sound? Why 
something that looks like fire? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, let's, let's think of God coming to Adam in the garden. Adam hears the sound of the Almighty in the wind of the day. Uh, Let's think of Israel at Mount Sinai. Loud sound. Fire. Pillars of smoke. Let's think of the tabernacle or the temple. Again, the, the Lord's fiery presence fills the dwelling place, both in the tabernacle and in the In the temple. It seems to me that the sound and the fire are consistent with the way God manifested his presence, his his glory before. And how could it be anything less? We're not talking about an impersonal energy here. We are talking about the third person of the Trinity. The only difference is that now he was making his dwelling in the church. It was initially the garden, then the tabernacle then the temple, then ultimately in Jesus Christ, the true temple. Jesus has the Spirit without measure. And now Jesus was sending the Spirit to dwell in the church, God's new temple. The book of Revelation is also helpful here. It describes the church as a lampstand. And the imagery comes from Zechariah chapter 4, where the lampstand signifies the Spirit's presence in the temple. It looked forward to a day when God would build His new temple in the power of the Holy Spirit. John picks this up in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, and he links it to the prophetic witness of the church through difficult opposition and persecution. The point is that the divine presence in his people, in his new temple, is what strengthens them for witness against evil. So I can't help but relate the fire resting on each person here, or what looks like fire, to the lampstand there in the prophetic witness of the church. During this age. It's also true that John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And there may be a sense in which God's presence in us purges evil from us. But Luke's emphasis is that God's empowering presence was no longer limited to a temple in Jerusalem. In fact, it's kind of funny because... There's a whole bunch of people gathering in the temple just down the road, and God's Spirit isn't there. It's here in the church, and it's going to have a... These temples are going to collide as the book of Acts goes on. God's empowering presence would be in His people. Jesus spoke of this in John 14, 17. He was with them, but He would eventually be in them. And that's what we're getting here. This is not the God of deism that stands aloof from his creatures. This is not the God of Islam who's too transcendent to condescend. 
This is the true God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ and gives himself to his people in the spirit of Christ. He does not say with Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses and Pharisees, you change first and then I'll let you into heaven. He brings heaven down to then change us. His presence turns broken people into vessels of witness. He makes defiled people, we see here, into sanctuaries of praise. This building is not God's house. You are, if you are in Christ. We don't go to church to find a holy place. God has come down to make you a holy person. God now dwells in his people. Shall we not give him the praise? Number three. The Spirit fills everyone in God's new community. The Spirit fills everyone in God's new community. Notice Luke's specificity here. Uh, Verse 3. Tongues as of fire, he says, appeared and rested on each one of them. And then verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not some of them, but all of them. So these are the 120 folks mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 15. Some of them were fishermen. Some of the women once had evil spirits in them. Uh, One had seven demons that Jesus had cast out. We get this from Luke chapter 8, verse 2. If you read that in light of the women mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. The Spirit rests on and fills all of them. So in the scope of God's saving plan, this this is absolutely huge. There was a time when the Spirit did not fill every individual in the community like this. The Spirit was poured out on chosen individuals like the prophet and the priest and the king, maybe a few others like Bezalel and Aholiab and then building the temple, the tabernacle, I mean. The Spirit empowered these these chosen leaders to lead and judge and mediate and speak on behalf of God, but not every individual enjoyed the same blessing, the same empowerment and knowledge of God's will. It was largely mediated through these other individuals. We even see Moses wishing that all God's people had the Spirit like we're seeing here in Acts. There's this episode in Numbers chapter 11. Okay, God comes down in a cloud. Moses is feeling the burden of his leadership, uh, leading these stubborn people. God's going to give him 70 men. Anyway, God takes some of the spirit that was on Moses, and he puts it on these 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rests on these elders, they prophesy. And... Same happens to these other two guys, Eldad and Medad. The Spirit rests on them too. This is Numbers 11, verse 26. The Spirit rests on them too, but they prophesy in the camp instead of at the tent of meeting. And so this raises some eyebrows. And somebody goes and tattles to Moses. Uh, Hey, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua gets all in a tiff and he says, My Lord Moses, stop them. 
And in verse 27, Moses says to Joshua, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's his wish. He wished everybody in the covenant community had the spirit like that. Well, that wish then later gets picked up by the prophet Joel. During one of the darkest moments in Israel's history, Joel announces a new age was dawning. Judah was languishing in exile. God judged them for their sin. But now God would have pity. He would would turn their nothingness and their desolation into an abundance. And he would turn their shame into praise. And the one thing changing it all was that he would be in the midst of his people. He was going to return to them and be in the midst of his people. And it's in that context that God then says, And I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You remember Moses' wish here. Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets. And here, what what do we see here? From Joel, all flesh, sons and daughters, young men and old men. Male servants and female servants. In other words, the new age would be way better than any age that preceded it because the Spirit would be poured out on everyone in the community, not just a few. And what does He fill them to do? Well, that brings us to number four. The Spirit empowers God's people to speak for God. The Spirit empowers God's people to speak for God. The Spirit does a number of other things as well. He illuminates our minds so that we understand the gospel. He sanctifies us so that we turn away from sin. He transforms our behavior. He enables us to love one another and, and so forth. That's just not Luke's focus here. Luke's focus is how the Spirit empowers witness when He comes. Verse 4 says... They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. These tongues are not uncontrolled babble that is mindless. They are other human languages. Notice verse 6. They were bewildered because each one was hearing him speak in his own language. Verse 8. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue or language? Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is not a miracle of hearing. This is a miracle of speaking. Luke has got a thing for the Spirit coming on people and and the Spirit moving them to to speak for God. Uh, In Luke chapter 1, let's let's take his gospel, for instance. In Luke chapter 1, the Spirit comes on Elizabeth, and she breaks forth in this blessing upon Mary about Jesus. 
in Luke chapter 1 also you have the Spirit who comes upon Zechariah. And he is filled, he's filled with Spirit and he prophesies. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then in chapter 2 of Luke you get Simeon. The Holy Spirit comes on Simeon and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation. John the Baptist, then in chapter 3 of Luke, he gets the Spirit and he preaches the gospel of the kingdom. And then you get Jesus in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit anoints Jesus. And what does Jesus say? The Spirit has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then you reach the end of Luke's gospel and you see that the same will be true of the church. When the Spirit comes, repentance and the forgiveness of sins will go out to all nations. The book of Acts is teasing that out now for the church. These folks are declaring, it says, the mighty works of God. And they're doing it in languages they hadn't grown up with, nor had they learned before. It was a spontaneous outburst of praise with no explanation for how these unlearned Galileans were speaking this way. It's why they're so puzzled and shocked, and others are mocking them. Does that mean we should expect the same thing to happen to us? Is Luke's purpose to say that every individual Christian must speak in a foreign tongue? Otherwise, it's questionable whether they're full of the Spirit. Absolutely not. We know he's not saying that because the Spirit fills people in other instances in Acts and they do not speak in foreign tongues when he does. If God has it for some not to speak in a foreign tongue when he fills them with the Spirit, let's not build a theology or a denomination that makes it the criterion for all. He is saying, though, that the spirit of prophecy makes a prophetic people. Let's not reduce what the Spirit does do in His people just out of fear of past abuses in church history. There are aspects to Pentecost that are unique and unrepeatable, yes. But Luke's point isn't that the Spirit filled the church this once and then quit. Goes back up into heaven. Rather, Luke is telling us of an entire age that has dawned. Uh, It is what characterizes these last days, he calls them in verse 17, in the last days. Uh, And you also notice he says it again at the end of verse 18, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Luke is helping us understand when this spirit of prophecy comes upon God's people and it comes upon God's people in these last days which extend from Jesus' resurrection all the way to his second coming. That includes now. So he's talking about now, the last days in between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. These are the days in which the prophetic spirit is poured out on everyone in the covenant community. Remember Moses' wish, would that 
all the Lord's people were prophets. And Joel later made that wish into a promise, and Luke is now telling us that it's here. Does that mean we can speak new words of revelation that add to Scripture? Absolutely not. The Bible carefully distinguishes between prophecy that carries scriptural authority, which belong to chosen prophets and apostles, and prophecy that's built on scriptural authority. The Bible has categories like that. If you want to see one example of it in the Old Testament, go to Numbers chapter 12. This is after you've got Moses and these other guys that are prophesying. And these guys who prophesy are are in submission to to Moses, who talks face to face with God. Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 and 8. If you want some New Testament examples, 1 Corinthians 14, 29 is another, and 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 20 and 21, where you see that uh, there's prophecy in the church and it must be weighed and evaluated. Dismiss what's bad, keep what's good. Also, please notice that the spirit of prophecy doesn't always produce the same kind of verbal communication. Even here, what do we find? We see some of them, a lot of them, speaking in a language not their own. And we see Peter speaking in a language that is his own. The one draws in and the other saves. You also find throughout the book of Acts, uh, many of the things it talks about here in terms of visions and dreams and, uh, and whatnot and, and prophecy, you find this throughout the book of Acts, uh, visions and dreams, you find instruction as well, guidance, insight to truth, wisdom to defend the, the gospel, encouragement, spontaneous praise, Preaching, teaching, evangelism. There are all kinds of verbal ministries that the spirit of prophecy produces in the church. And let's not narrow it down to this one or two kinds of manifestation. In in this broader sense of prophecy, all of God's people are prophets. You know, we sometimes talk about Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And a lot of times we we talk about when we're united to Jesus, he makes us into a kingdom. We are kings. And when we're united to Jesus, he makes us into a priesthood. We are priests. There's another sense in the New Testament in which by being united to Jesus, we all become prophets as well. Become a prophetic community. So we speak for God based on the revelation He has given us in Jesus Christ. The Spirit came not for mere personal experience, but for powerful outreach. Your mission isn't to get your lost friends to go to church so that the anointed pastor can then tell them the gospel. The spirit of prophecy is in you. For you to tell them about Jesus. He equips everyone 
Joel includes people, if you noticed it, from each gender, every age, all social classes, and all races. One thing matters. Do your allegiances belong to the exalted Christ? And if so, you get the Spirit. At the same time, we must pray for Him to fill us. That's the dynamic of the New Testament. We can be full in this age, but we also need daily filling. We see this with the church, for example, in Acts 4. They had already received the Spirit at Pentecost. And yet they experience persecution, they get together, they pray, God, we need boldness to keep doing this in the face of persecution, and the Spirit comes and fills them and they go out and preach with with boldness. So we see it's at both ends. They are full and they need to be filled. The Lord grants it. And they go out preaching boldly. And that leads to number five. The Spirit's new work impacts all nations. The Spirit's new work Impacts all nations. You see a host of places and peoples listed in verses 8 to 11. Parthians and Medes and and Elamites and so forth. Uh, Verse... Uh, If you notice in verse uh, 5, it says that they're all Jews. Verse 10 says that there are some proselytes. So these would be people that converted to Judaism. They're all Jews. But they're coming from all over the world. From all four corners of, of, of the map. Man, I had a a map that I wanted to show you guys, but the PowerPoint's not up today. I wonder if I could pick that up. I'm going to do this. There. Look where they're coming from. It's all four corners of the map. Did y'all see that? Good. The uh, NIV Study Bible also has a a great one. If you look, just type in NIV Study Bible, Pentecost, All Nations. And uh, it's got a great little map, too, to print off. God had once scattered Israel, hadn't he? And there are several places in the prophets where we know where he scatters them. He scatters them north, south, east, and west. But then God also promised to bring them back, right? I will bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who I've called by my name. And these are the beginnings of that great work. 3,000 of them get saved by the end of Peter's sermon. And before too long, some of them take the gospel back out to the regions where they came from. Verse 39 will say that the promise of the Spirit is for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. It is for those who are far off. He's talking about the Gentiles. If the Spirit is building God's kingdom with people from all nations, 
then there's no room for prejudice or racism in the church, whether subtle or explicit. There's no choosing of what color of church we want to be or be a part of. There's no demographic that we ignore simply because they're not like us. But more positively, the only hope for all races is the Spirit working in the church. We're talking about the Holy Spirit here. He can't fail in his mission. He's God. He ordered the entire cosmos. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the waters. If he ordered the cosmos, I think he can order us. He truly changes people. He reconciled Jews and Gentiles for crying out loud. And that's way worse than what we have today. The Spirit gathers people to Christ. And it's in Christ that he unites us into one body. But he does it through the gospel that he empowers you and me to speak to others and to each other. And that's where I want to close the gospel. Number six. The Spirit's coming demands that all call upon the Lord before final judgment. The Spirit's coming demands that all call upon the Lord before final judgment. Notice the rest of Joel's prophecy that he quotes in verses 19 to 21. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be darkened, turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's with this language of cosmic upheaval, blood, fire, smoke, sun darkened, moon to blood, some of it Some of it reminds us of God's terrifying and majestic presence on Mount Sinai. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But we also see it associated with the great day of God's judgment. And the idea is that God is of such majesty and power. His glory is of such gravity that everything in heaven and earth trembles as He approaches to judge. You find this same language from Joel in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. Revelation 6, verse 12, says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. That's that's Joel. The full moon became like blood. Again, that's Joel. 
and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place, the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Joel foresaw this day very well. All rebels would give an account to the Lord. All who have ignored God and who suppressed His truth will stand before Him. Joel has a picture of the whole world in Joel chapter 2 and 3, of the whole world heading to judgment. It says the Lord will roar from Zion and the earth will quake at his voice, at his presence. No one can stand in his holy presence. All will pay the penalty. Unless there's an escape. How is it that... How is it that Peter... Quotes verses 19 to 21 when it seems to be pointing to the future. Final judgment from God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Jesus is being crucified. And I want you to pay attention to something in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Did you see it? Darkness over the whole land. The sun's light failed. Matthew adds that the earth shook and rocks were split. The point is this. The cross of Jesus Christ is where God came down against the nations full of wrath. And he poured out that wrath on his own son in their place. So here's how it fits together. God pours out his wrath on Jesus for the nations before He pours out his wrath on the nations by Jesus. God pours out his wrath on Jesus for the nations before he pours out his wrath on the nations by Jesus. And in between this twofold judgment, the cross and the final judgment, 
what does he do? He raises Jesus from the dead. He pours out the Spirit from heaven. And right now, through you and me, he is rescuing sinners from all tribes, tongues, and peoples. So that they, by placing their faith in that judgment that fell on Christ, might escape the coming judgment. That's how Luke can quote the whole of that text here in chapter 2 of Acts. Because he knows that that final end time judgment began when it fell on Jesus in our place. When Luke sees the outpoured spirit, he knows the last days are here, the judgment is coming, and Jesus is the only hope. That's the message we take to the nations. All nations, just like Joel said, are heading to final judgment. It's a day of great wrath and terror. It will consign many to an eternity of torment. But the message, the good news, is you can escape. You can escape. All flesh can escape. All ages can escape. Each gender can escape the coming judgment. All classes of people can escape. They escape, it says, by calling upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord, in this case, is Jesus. He's the Lord in view here. He is God in the flesh who paid the penalty for sinners. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It means to trust what He's done for you. To give Him your allegiances. Who might you share that message with this week? Go ahead and write their name down. If you have a pencil, write their name down. If you don't, Think about them. Maybe there are two or three. Who needs to hear it again? Who hasn't heard it at all? What steps will you take to get them the message? Remember, you have the spirit of prophecy. He empowers His people to speak boldly for God. So pray for Him to empower you and to fill you and to fill us. And we do that now.